everyone, Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the 52nd episode of the RIT Podcast. It's the middle of the summer, and we're still months away from Parliament returning and the Conservative leadership race coming to a conclusion, but I wanted to check in on where things are in federal politics. So to do that this week on the podcast, I'm joined again by journalist Shannon Proudfoot and Spirit Devetti, Director of Policy Engagement at the Center for Media, Technology, and Democracy, and Senior Counsel for Enterprise Canada. She's also the co-host of the new Seriously podcast. Hi, Shannon and Spirit. Good morning. Um, so we'll start with the Conservative leadership race. We did have some news uh, that just came out just before we started recording that there is going to be a debate sometime next month. Uh, but just in general, uh, and Supri, I'll start with you. Uh, you know, we had the disqualification of Patrick Brown. Seems like we're heading towards a Polyev victory, or at least that's what everybody is assuming. And we've had lots of talk just in the last little week, uh, week or two about what this means going forward. You know, is, is there going to be divides for the party? Is there going to be an attempt to create a more moderate centrist kind of party after all this. Where do you think things stand right now in terms of the conservatives and the future for the party? So it's interesting because the Polyev campaign and to a degree Brown as he was leaving very much both in their own respective ways have a bit of a scorched earth strategy, right? Like when Brown was announcing he was rerunning for um, mayor as Brampton, he was like really lobbing bombs at the CPC still, um, you know, denigrating the process. And Polyev as well um, seems to be, you know, to a degree pushing out anybody who isn't like a loyalist or isn't, uh, you know, adherent to, uh, to, to his, his dear leadership sort of style. But I think in terms of where things are, uh, the party itself is very much aligned um, behind Pierre Polyev. And to the degree to which the party itself is like divided or there are, you know, um, really uh, irreparable or like this huge chasm of divide, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I mean, arguably Charest and Brown, neither of whom are part of the current federal party, um, they're outsiders. So like, it's like almost the outsiders that are saying the party itself is divided, but I think the party itself is very much aligned behind Pierre Polyev. And I think he really does embody what this iteration of the conservative party um, has become. Um, And, you know, he really does speak to the, most hardest core elements of their base. Shannon, do you think that after this race is over, you know, we'll put a bit this all behind mm-hmm. the party and just like in the past, they'll gather around the leader and, and uh, stay, to, uh, stay united? I think I slightly disagree with what Sapria said, or maybe rather put an asterisk on it. Um, absolutely, she's right that Sheree and Brown and the people who sort of maybe represent a more moderate kind of appeal in this race are inherently outsiders right now, whereas Polyev is sort of the consummate insider. But I don't think what follows from that is that the supporters or the people who see their version of the Conservative Party and those candidates are themselves outsiders. I mean, we've seen some very public schisms and criticism of the party from loyalists, operatives, you know, longtime prominent members who have sort of disavowed it and and talked about sort of what they see as a circus or a shambles here. So I'm not sure I see it as being as unified, although like Sapria is obviously right. There is a ton of energy and momentum around Polyev. There has been from the beginning sort of a prohibitive level of it, but I, I, I don't know if like that means that there really is complete unanimity or or if the people who maybe don't agree are either quiet or being silenced. Um, It still seems to me like there's some very fundamentally divergent 
versions of what conservatism is represented here. Now, the reality is only one person wins and you kind of have to rally around the flag and go for it. So I guess that maybe that that is a decision for the party membership and the caucus in the next stage. But it it still seems quite fractious to me because there are such massively, massively different versions of what Canadian conservatism can be. And I would also say just the sheer messiness of the party over the last few years. Um, Andrew Coyne was tweeting, I'm not sure if it was last night or this morning, but I saw it this morning. He was sort of just doing a simple numbers game where he was saying seven in the seven years since Stephen Harper stepped down as leader, the party has spent three years with either an interim leader, a caretaker leader, a dead man walking leader. That leads to such messiness and a lack of coherence in a time, and I would argue with increasing urgency as the Liberal government gets kind of weird and long in the tooth and just sort of strange and insular, that you really need a strong opposition um, kind of holding their feet to the fire. And instead, to me, the party's internal messiness kind of being hung out on the laundry line publicly is is really hurting their case, I think. There is, though, the... Uh, you know, you, you could take the view that because it's been so fractious for the last little while, maybe there'll be more of an incentive to try to put that behind them. But um, I do wonder if, you know, when you see these organizations or this this one that uh, was in the newspapers recently, the Center Rice Conservatives, or, you know, it has a few names, no, no one really that anybody would know across the country. Sapria, it's not easy to get something off the ground. It's one thing to be talking about it, but, you know, will actually anything happen when this is over? No, I don't think so. Um, and the reason I don't is that we've had these sorts of conversations, you know, uh, before, maybe not to the degree in which we're having them right now in this country. But I mean, you know, if you look at the example in the US of all these Republicans that were supposedly going to be very vocal, or were at some point very vocally anti-Trump, um, they all came into the fold. And I think partisanship is a hell of a drug. I think um, being, you know, having government in sight is a, a, a heck of a thing. And I think ultimately folks will fall in line um, irrespective of what they're perhaps saying right now. And I agree with Shannon actually, and in, in, in terms of um, there are obviously quite a bit of folks out there who have been vocal. You wouldn't have an organization of these you know, centerized conservatives if that wasn't the case. Um, but I think you know, those people I would argue aren't necessarily in the party insider sort of apparatus or structure anymore. Um, they may have been, um, you know, five to seven, 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago, um, but the party has evolved uh, quite drastically. And the party right now doesn't really seem to have much of an appetite for the kinds of things that like Patrick Brown's campaign was trying to do, for example, in which like they're taking ownership uh, for the part, the Conservative Party stance in past elections when it comes to like the Niqab stuff or the Barbaric Cultural Practices Act or like, you know, being for some reason vociferously opposed to a motion to condemn Islamophobia. Um, right now, the party really seems to be in this like, uh, let's dunk on the libs and drink liberal tears for breakfast sort of mode. Um, and I don't really see that going away anytime soon, especially if um, care is the one to win because it's kind of like a you know, self-fulfilling prophecy that, that this is what the party wants and we won, there go, this is what the party wants. 
the group that we're talking about, the, the names that I saw, there was Rick Peterson, who is a former candidate uh, in 2017, who you know didn't do very well. There was Dominic Cardi, who is a, uh, a New Brunswick a progressive conservative, a former New Democrat, which uh, which is kind of surprising. And Marjorie LeBreton, who is, um, uh, I believe, a former senator. I don't think she is anymore. Um, but, uh, but you're right. It's people who are not, it's not someone like... Um, you know, someone standing up, a Quebec Conservative MP that's currently there. There was talk that maybe Michelle Rempel Garner was going to in some way be involved in, in making a speech or something like this with the organization. But until you have some big names, um, you know, if it's people who aren't sitting MPs that are threatening or talking about doing something different, it's, I guess it's not all that scary for Polyev's camp, Shannon. Yeah, and Supriya makes a good point. We're sort of debating all this in the vacuum of <clears throat> nobody having one, not facing down even, I think, the remote possibility of an election soon, notwithstanding the fun we're bored in the summer rumors of a week or two ago that, I don't know, personally just made me want to lie down under my desk and go to sleep. I don't know about anybody else. <laughs> but but it's one thing to sort of debate this as kind of an academic point, a theoretical thing. And But I think... Um, the kind of butt to that cuts both ways, which is exactly what Supriya is saying. People get excited about momentum and the possibility of winning and boy, do they learn to hold their noses fast if they sort of smell a meal ticket coming. So it could very well be, and especially because Polyev seems to have a ton of energy behind him. I think there are some big questions if, if a lot of his appeal is to previous non-voters or people who were disengaged, I think there's a big question about conversion rates and how much people stick with you, both to vote in the leadership campaign, to come out in a general election that might not happen for two or three more years. But if he has sort of a lot of momentum behind him, people might well throw themselves at that. And in fact, we know that they do. As she said, partisanship is a hell of a drug. But the other way that cuts, I think, is then you have to test your offering as whatever version of the conservative party you have decided to be in a general election or to the general electorate. And that is a very different thing. As we've seen the last couple of conservative leadership races, <clears throat> you're, you're just preaching to an entirely different congregation. And the last couple of leaders have had a really hard time sort of switching, kind of pivoting from camera one to camera two and presenting who they are to a broader Canadian voter base and trying to kind of win um, some kind of cobble together, some kind of winning coalition. Again, though, I think nothing happens in a vacuum and it depends on how much the milk continues to curdle on the Liberals and Trudeau. Like, it might not matter a whole lot. I've, I've sort of thought all along, I was kind of puzzled by Polyev's strategy because I know he's a smart dude. He's a very strategic mind and his kind of hard right approach to me seemed like a self-limiting offering to a Canadian electorate. But I'm now starting to wonder, <clears throat> pardon me, if I was quite wrong about that because if what we get is a pendulum swinging back with just people being exhausted and annoyed with the liberals after seven, eight, nine years, wherever we get to, um, that might be exactly the itch people want to have scratched. So I think sort of there's talking about it in the Petri dish of the right now, and then there's post September and even into next year. And, and after that, as we get closer to the possibility of uh, the parties actually competing against each other instead of within. So can I just add something really yeah. quickly to that? Because I think Shannon makes a, a really good point. The, the one thing I would sort of just add is that, you know, with both Sheer and O'Toole, they did make a sort of pivot, right, to the to, to the general. And they had to, particularly O'Toole. I mean, he's this like true blue candidate talking about left wing campus culture going out of control during the during the, the, the leadership race. And then in the general, you know, he tries to pivot back more to his like 
natural resting state of like red Tory-ish or sensible, moderate conservative, however you want to qualify that. I, I don't think Polyev's going to do that. Um, you know, and I don't think he has any real incentive to do that. I think there are a large portion of conservatives that are very much <laughs> of the, uh, you know, screw them, we're conservative, we're going to be unabashedly conservative. However, it, you know, that ends up being defined by them um, remains to be seen. But I think if, you know, past this precedent, then as of right now, you know, we're going to see a, a Polyev who's going to be like, if journalists, for example, are calling out the fact that there are gaps in terms of policy or like, you know, there is something that doesn't necessarily make sense. I mean, he's going to call them liberal mouthpieces. He already has for for for, for journalists. And, you know, very much taking a, a page out of the Maxime Bernier playbook. And I think what his team is sort of relying on is that right now, anyway, a lot of legacy political media um, tends to treat both you know, parties that are ever in contention to form government in this country, the liberals of the conservatives, as variations of like Coke and Pepsi, um, very similar offerings to the voter base, um, without any real substantive differences between them. Yeah, well, there's the RC Cola option of the NDP as well. So that's we'll see true. if that's uh, yeah. going to come out. But, uh, you know, can I just say, though, I, yeah. I would like this this podcast to be responsible for coining the phrase resting red Tory face because I think that's yeah. awesome <laughs> and I think that's a thing we should keep on the diagnosis books after O'Toole I like that yeah I don't think I agree completely that Poliev is going to pivot uh the I know that there's this perception that well he has to so he will uh, but when you just the kind of language he uses the fact that the people around him you know, Jenny Byrne, if you listen to her during the podcast in previous elections, always saying how they lost because they weren't conservative enough. There's no, I see no possibility that he's going to be pivoting very much, maybe a teeny bit at most, but, but there's also the fact that it's going to be three years. Though, yeah, go ahead. I did, I did not mean to suggest he would. I would exactly. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah, yeah. think he can. I mean, the dude has been writing letters to the editor since before he could drive, beating on the same drum he's beating on now. Like, you can accuse him of many things, but inconsistency or a sort of chameleon-like political approach is not one. It would be ludicrous if that guy pivoted. I'm thinking more, what's the appetite for what he is offering and, and where's the growth potential? Anyway, I just wanted yeah. to, to no. not sound like an idiot by suggesting Pierre Polyev no, no, no. was going to moderate because no. <laughs> We're arguing against conventional wisdom of people who aren't on the podcast. And of course they're wrong um, because they're, they're not on the wrong. podcast. Yeah. There's also <laughs> the fact that it will be three years if it is three years. Um, you know, there was a poll that was put out by Abacus Data just this week and it showed that with Polyev as leader of the conservatives, it didn't really help them at all, uh, which suggests that he still will have a big challenge to appeal to uh, people who aren't currently with the conservatives. Because if you think back to when Justin Trudeau won in 2013, those hypothetical polls would always put the liberals way ahead. There was a boost that he gave them. And we're not seeing that with Polly Evan. We didn't see that with either Shear or Tool either. So I think there's a big challenge there that there is the base and they are speaking a little bit to uh, the choir, as you, as you said. And to get to the next level, they, they might need to do something different. So let's let's pivot now to Patrick Brown, who was making the case that he was trying to bring the Conservatives to somewhere else. Um, so he announced that he's going to more or less give up on trying to become conservative leader and get back into the race. So I think the legal case is still going to go forward. He's going to run for mayor of Brampton again. Supriya, so when we now think of the campaign of Patrick Brown and the fact that he's more or less just going to plan B again, uh, what was he doing this whole time? What was the plan here? I think his plan was sort of to remind people that the conservative party as it is presently um, wasn't always the, 
way the party sort of operated and conservatism can mean um, not being a dick um, and not being, you know, outwardly adversarial and not being um, uh, closed or at least uh, seemingly closed to particular uh, communities. I'm thinking, you know, the South Asian community um, in, 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 in particular here. Uh, and I think that was his sort of strategy. We saw throughout the campaign, he was having, he wasn't having these like big splashy campaign events, but like literally everywhere he went to, he'd find some sort of like Mandir Gurdwara mosque, you know, uh, South Asian cultural community center, where, wherever it was to sort of get into and have smaller types of, of conversations. And, and I think there, you know, was some, uh, good thinking behind that. And there's a lot to be said about how, you know, the conservatives still really haven't made amends with a lot of Canadians uh, from the 2015 campaign um, and for, you know, certain things that they've done since then. So I think that's what he was trying to do. I think he was trying to sort of um, emulate what, uh, to a degree, I think what Doug Ford has done quite successfully in Toronto and Ontario generally, but I'm talking like specifically within the GTA about getting people to vote uh, PC again. You know, if you want to think about uh, out east, um, Tim Houston of Nova Scotia is another really good example of like putting the progressive back into progressive conservative. But like that's part of the issue is that like they're not the progressive conservative party anymore. It's, they're just conservative. Um, and so what he was thinking, I mean, I, I, if I had to get into his mindset, I think that's probably what it was. Uh, but in terms of whether he ever really had a, a hope and owl of, of winning this thing, I mean, probably not. Um, and I just honestly feel kind of bad for the people of Brampton to know that like, he, he was like, they're just his plan B, right? Like, that's kind of sucky. It's like being the last girl at the bar and uh, getting asked to, to go home with just because you're the last one standing. You'll do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it does make me wonder what Patrick Brown would have done um, because the race would have been over on September 10th, but I think that would have been too late to get into the race to run for mayor of Brampton again. Um, what, like Shannon, I know we can't get into his mind, but you know, it does feel in a way like it was always the plan to eventually run for mayor of Brampton because if he would have gone forward and lost, what would have happened to Patrick Brown in October? I don't know. I find he's one of those public figures where more than average you think like what is going on inside his head like what is he really trying to do what is the difference between what he's actually trying to do and what he says he's trying to do and Supriya makes really good points about what he was trying to advance politically and the fact that they're that's that's probably smart that's a missing piece that's an important thing but it's very hard to disentangle it from the fact that he is shall we say a deeply imperfect or messy candidate i mean there's just a trail of debris behind him right like it reminds me of one of those old like family circus cartoons where you'd see the dotted line where the kid went around the yard and left a mess everywhere like there's just piles of stuff behind him um you know a lot of it unproven or murky or whatever we're still kind of litigating in public why he was kicked out of the race there's you know he has made i think a pretty clever um and by clever, I also mean cynical argument. I mean, he sort of dropped it now, but his argument that basically the party brass was trying to ensure a victory for uh, Polyev, that that was the preferred candidate and they're trying to sort of disenfranchise any other supporters. That's a really smart and cynical as hell way to 
kind of dodge the question of like what you were responsible for, what the allegations were about you. It just, it's the sort of, please won't someone think of the children defense. Like um, it's, it's just turning the mirror away, but there's just so much, so much messiness and so many tendrils with Brown that it's a bit hard to, to sort of separate um, his political project from whatever was going on behind the scenes and from the legacy of the issues he's had and been accused of in the past. I don't know if either of you are experts in municipal politics in Brampton, but uh, I wonder, I'm curious to see if he's going to have any impact on his ability to be reelected in the city. So that'll be something to watch if Patrick Brown's political career is going to be over after this year, or if he's going to, he feels like actually someone who will always be around though, doesn't he? I was going to say, he'll find something else to run for. Like he's one of these guys who's just always running for something. I think he's allergic to like a real job. I don't know. (laughs) And Brampton as a, as a city, that community needs really good and deserves really good local government. I mean, we saw during the pandemic that was sort of ground zero for a lot of Mm. the inequality, the problems of the pandemic. You know, there were those brilliant stories in in the logic about, or sorry, not, pardon me, not the The local. The local, local. yes, thank you. The local by Fatima Syed about, about, the, the the workers, the lack of hospital, like the, there's all kinds of cases to be made that Brampton is not getting a fair shake as a municipality. And this just feels like more of the same. I, I hope whatever the voters decide there, they end up with some good leadership and, and some progress for their community. Uh, let's uh, move over to uh, the Liberals now, because, um, you know, it's been mentioned a couple of times. It does feel like they are in a little bit of a it almost it feels like an end of cycle kind of thing. It could just be the summer and, you know, the problems have been piling up with passports, with airports. There was the Ukraine, um, the turbine that was sent to Germany. Um, Supriya, do you feel like there is a sort of liberal drift here or is there a perception of a liberal drift? I mean, probably both which I realize isn't like the best sort of answer. But what I would say is that in terms of like, like passports are a great example, right? Like this is something that every regular person expects your government to be able to deliver on. And when it takes like a gajillion years to get your passport and you're getting confounding information from the website and like the passport person that's at the counter, um, you know, Matt Gurney over at the line did a really good sort of firsthand reporting of this. Uh, in terms of what just what he was seeing at, 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 at a passport office, I think you get people very frustrated. But then, you know, when you start to broaden your lens a little bit, um, and I, this isn't an excuse for, for Canada by any stretch, but there are other jurisdictions that are having the same sorts of issues simply because they, you know, didn't anticipate for whatever reason that people were going to want to travel once again, once they were given the, the green light to do so. So, um, it, it is, uh, the Liberals can take a little bit, I guess, of solace in that, but it's certainly not anything that they can write home about or anything that they can sort of like bank on. Um, I think the other aspect to this is that the Liberals kind of need, um, you know, an, a clear opponent. And so once the Conservatives do have a leader in place and once like the vision for the next election is sort of um, established, it makes it a lot easier to sort of, um, you know, have some of the rhetoric or those talking points in mind. But you also, you know, we also forget that as much as they are the Liberal Party, they're also, all, you know, they're the governing party and they are managing through multiple crises um, at once. And I think in terms of just everything that they've been able to um, you know, stick handle at simultaneously, 
I don't think anybody would, would want to be in that position necessarily. I know I certainly wouldn't want to be. And so to that degree, they're, they're going to need, especially in the conservatives having like, an, let's say it is Pierre, right? A new, younger, energetic leader getting like millennial men um, onto his, uh, in, into his camp and it being interested in the conservative party. Um, they're going to need something, the liberals that is, to be able to reinvigorate um, some of the folks that drifted away from them since 2015. And uh, certainly what they're doing right now isn't it. Um, and, you know, I know we might get into this a, a little bit, but like if you want to get younger parents sort of on side, um, I, I think you're going to have to start talking about things that are important to them. So like what will our climate look like when, you know, Shannon's youngest and, and, and my kid are like our age, like what do, what are they going to do for jobs? What does the housing market look like for them then? You know, like these are all questions that I know are looming at the back of every parent's mind, um, you know, and I don't know that they're necessarily being addressed to the degree to which we'd like them to be solved. Yeah, Shannon, there's the, there's the big questions about, years to come. There's the things that they're uh, having to grapple, grapple with right now. And <clears throat> I take Sapria's point, you know, if inflation and the thing that we're seeing in airports uh, could be, you know, 95% attributable to global kind of pressures and everybody else is dealing with it. At least if, if you have a 5% influence on it, you want to be seen to be doing something with that 5%. That's it. I, I've thought through the whole pandemic that there were there were hard problems and problems that you couldn't anticipate. And then there were like just obvious boneheaded own goals at all levels and all kinds of government. And the fact that there would be a resurgence in travel once people could again after two years is is like the most obvious thing imaginable. You didn't need polling to tell you that. Now, like obviously we know logistically when we look at news coverage from elsewhere, this is not a uniquely Canadian gatekeeper problem, no matter how much certain people might want us to think that it is. But to your point, there was a certain amount that our government could have done to smooth out the part that they were responsible for. And it doesn't seem like they handled it very well. Um, I, I do agree that there seems to be just some, some drift, some malaise, some lack of focus. Like it feels like a late stage government, like just sort of kind of, kind of treading water and I'm sympathetic to a large degree to the fact that everyone is very tired after two years in crisis mode and I mean everyone the media government ordinary people I, I just I, my pet theory continues to be that we have not accounted for enough for how personal emotional experiences of the last two years have shaped public life because it's not a small thing but but then there is a okay let's get on with it you know like we know the pandemic is not not with us anymore but it seems to be out of the acute phase and we have to keep managing our country and 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 doing stuff i i get that it's it's summer i mean maybe september would really be the time to kind of write up a report card but um, it, it does just feel like there's just kind of this suspended animation or ennui about the government uh, and about the, the Liberal Party, in addition to which, at least the people I've talked to, even if you very delicately broach the idea of there someday being a post-Trudeau era, like maybe in the future, someday he won't be the leader anymore, they're, they're, they seem like mortally offended or, or afraid. Yeah. And yeah. that does not say good things to me. Like, I understand he's your meal ticket. He's been your Teflon guy for 10 years now. I get that. But you are going to end up in the wilderness and deservedly so if you cannot possibly wrap your head around the fact that he can't be that forever. And you can't continue to succeed if you cling to him like a life raft. 
next April is the 10 year anniversary of him becoming leader of the Liberal Party. Um, Which is wild, right? I don't hmm. think people, I, I don't think, I could be wrong. I don't think people think of him as like a long time guy. Like, I don't know why, if it's like his inherent youthfulness or something about the passage of time in a pandemic, I feel like we've all sort of elided that time period. Maybe I'm just projecting though. Well, he's the longest serving governing leader in the country right now. And like when there's the G7 meets, he's usually the dean of it, or at least close to it. Um, and yeah, he's been around for a long time. And when you think about the fact that he has now been uh, the prime minister for, uh, you know, seven years, the last two and a half years, it's mostly just been putting out fires and just dealing with whatever's going on with COVID and everything like that. So it does feel like there has been a, 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 not as much of an opportunity and maybe they've gotten used to that where it's not about whatever it's the true. next big thing is. Um, sure. So you don't have to have a vision if you're just dealing with constant emergencies, right? You don't have to think about what you're going to do next because you just put out the next fire. That's kind of licking at, at the corners of your room. As Supriya, you mentioned the, um, you know, the, the big things, right? So inflation is still a huge issue. Cost of living, housing affordability, those kinds of pocketbook issues are still going to be a, a huge problem for the government and every government for the next few years and uh, probably perhaps until the next election, whenever it is. But when you're seeing the, the pictures out of, out of Europe, uh, you know, the heat waves that are, are there, um, the fact that it seems that more and more every year we have some sort of natural disaster or some sort of thing that seems to be related to climate change, um, you do wonder if the environment is going to become a big issue again and whether someone like Pierre Poilievre is going to be a little bit out of position uh, on it in three years. I hope the environment is a bigger issue only because it's like the one issue that affects literally every single person on this planet. And I don't think we've done a very good job in this country and basically everywhere um, of really being able to contextualize that for people because you either have like the doom and gloom of like, everything's terrible, we're all gonna burn, like the oceans are boiling, everything's dying. Uh, in terms of you know species loss and so there's like no point um or it's like the complete other end of like you know this is all just elitist sort of thinking um to be able to even be like consumed or concerned about the environment but i really think we need to start thinking about climate change uh in terms of what it is it's a threat multiplier so the threats that currently already exist that are all around us all become multiplied and exacerbated when it comes to the climate we're talking about a pandemic um, I, I don't really know if a lot of people fully appreciate or understand the extent to which pandemics and climate change intersect um, and how they increase the, the prevalence of, uh, you know, infectious diseases uh, from, you know, mosquito borne diseases because they're more prevalent to like tick borne diseases because they're all around us to just um, more zoonotic spillover because you have all these animals that used to live in one place and now all of a sudden have to get out of that one place because uh, it's too hot or it's no longer livable for them. So they start interacting more and more with, uh, with, with humans. And then that's not even really getting into the issue of like how it exacerbates terror threats, how it exacerbates um, issues when it comes to like migration. Um, like what do, we, what do we think is gonna happen when entire swaths of the planet become uninhabitable? either because of sea level rise or because of the fact that it's just simply too hot to live there. Um, those people are gonna have to go somewhere and wars have been fought over for much less. So 
Um, I, I think we're, we really had our head in the sands when it comes to climate change for quite some time. I don't think we've done a good job of explaining the, the, you know, the effects or even the immediacy of some of these threats to people. And I certainly don't think politicians have done a, a, a very good job of this. And I think it's a real shame that in North America anyway, um, well, at least in, in, in Canada and the U.S., there is one side of the political aisle that seems very hell-bent on uh, ensuring that we don't really do anything or do anything substantive when it comes to climate. And that's a shame. It's a shame for all sorts of reasons, but it's, you know, the biggest shame is, you know, not to sound too like, well, somebody please think of the children, to Shannon's point, but like, it's a shame for everyone that's young right now, because like, what kind of future are we living, are, are, are we going to leave them? Um, and I think we should start thinking about that, at least in, in, in some better terms. Otherwise, we're, we're all kind of screwed. Yeah, Shannon, uh, balancing that bleak future yeah, and sorry. the fact that yeah. we need to do something about it with our bleak yeah. present. Uh, it seems like a, a pretty uh, de delicate balancing act for a government. Yeah, I, I thought we had reached a bit of a tipping point right before the pandemic in, in terms of kind of the visceral urgency of this. I, and again, I, I might be projecting, but I felt like we had a summer or a year of very extreme weather, which, you know, as sort of facile as it is, a collective action problem is is a problem because people don't feel like it's going to affect them or they don't feel like they need to sacrifice something to solve the problem. But when you have just getting pounded community after community, month after month by extreme heat, by floods, by terrifying things that happen to people's lives and property, it felt to me like we were getting a bit of urgency. And then the pandemic, of course, wiped everything else off the map. And I would say maybe it maybe it's not fair, but it's a reality that you can only deal with one crisis at a time generally, right? That's what a priority is. Um, but now we've sort of flicked at inflation and, and an affordability crisis and an environmental crisis that has still been gathering itself over the last two and a half years while we've been distracted. But I worry that those two things are sort of countervailing forces or that it's very hard to convince people to take action on one that being the environment and the climate crisis if they are worried about putting gas in their car or food on their table because it feels like one way or another solving the climate crisis is not going to be free it's not going to be easy it's going to require adjusting our lives and i think it's a really hard thing to ask that of individual people or businesses or governments or whatever when they're already dealing with something um, that they view as existential in terms of affordability. I'm not saying that's okay or that we should get off the hook, but it's just a lot. And it also provides an easy, empty calories, kind of very going for the gut appeal talking point. If you are disinclined to tackle this problem, you can say, oh, what are these, these champagne liberals, small L liberals doing swanning around telling you to worry about the environment when you can't put you can't feed your family or you can't afford your basic life. It's a very easy thing to kind of knock down the priority list um, and, and sort of diffuse with something that feels more visceral to people. So I just, I think it's an unfortunate confluence of circumstances to sort of have these crises kind of layered on top of each other, like tectonic plates and to, to sort of figure out how we, we dig at the one that as Supriya points out is absolutely existential. Like it's, it's hard sometimes not to be crippled by the urgency and the terror of it. And I, and I do think it's entirely possible to adopt a, oh my God, won't we please think of the children positioning that is not at all cynical. I think about that all the time. Like, what do I need to do? How do I need to set my kids up? Or what kind of world do we need to have so they'll be okay? 
um, it's just, I don't know, it just feels very heavy after a very heavy two years. And I don't know how you get people to pay attention and to bear the weight of that as voters or as a government or whatever. It feels Can like I the next have... election might be about that. Yeah. Yes, Bria. Yeah, well, I think one glimmer of hope we might have in this, and this is me going like full-fledged cynical here, but I think once, if you have Europe that's on fire and Europe that's dealing with these uh, intense, you know, heat waves, deaths from it, you know, I think Portugal, just Portugal, it's like over a thousand deaths in the in, in, in the last little bit um, from from these from these heat waves. You know, outside of London, you saw those uh, fires that had uh, emerged. I mean, that may change some of the narrative on this when it's quite frankly white people, the ones that are bearing the brunt of the climate crisis, and not just black and brown people. Um, I used to say this all the time in earlier panels when the carbon tax was like an issue and I'd be on, on, on panels with other, you know, um, political types or whatever going about how people in the suburbs and the GTA, all they care about is like how much their commute costs in terms of their gas. And I'm like, well, it, over the last 10 years, and that was in 2015, you couldn't have gone into like a mosque, a Gurdwara or a Mandir at any point without there being some sort of drive for uh, a drought or a heat wave or a huge flood that was happening, you know, in the old country um, and appealing for aid. And so I think communities of color who have either connections to the diaspora or have connections with family in the country of origin um, have recognized this for quite some time because it has been, you know, topic of conversation and it has been top of mind because it's been affecting them. And if that now has shifted at least somewhat um, for people in Europe experiencing analogous sort of pressures of climate change, then I think it can certainly um, tip the scales and the way we think about it and the way we talk about it, particularly the need to do something. Yeah, it was a, it was a few months ago, there was a, a horrendous heat wave in India. Um, and yeah. uh, it feels like, uh, you know, the shots of, of fire outside of London is, is uh, uh, getting a lot more attention. But um, all right. Well, that's all very depressing. So let's move on to uh, just we'll close with this. Um, so I'll hear from both of you on this. So what's more likely that there is a there's a serious chance of a snap election in the fall or that Justin Trudeau cut his hair for a political purpose? I will just say in a very strange confluence of events, my husband took our middle kid for a haircut possibly the very same day if not like 24 hours on either side and my middle kid has glorious red curly hair and so whenever my husband takes him for a haircut I become like the bossy wife caricature and I write him a script to tell the hairdresser take one inch off overall and that's it because his hair is like a glorious natural resource and he came back with the same terrible dumb and dumber haircut so either there was like a special on them in Ottawa they accidentally went to the same barber shop but it's been very personally disturbing for me to keep seeing these photos on these silly stories about Justin Trudeau's bad hair. And then look at my poor kid who got the same unfortunate <laughs> haircut. Although fortunately his hair grows out fast and he's adorable otherwise. Um, yeah, I used to not understand the notion of silly season. I remember when I was an intern, like a baby, baby reporter having a, you know, a really cool feature on the front page of the Ottawa Citizen. And of course I kept it for my clips file. And I still remember the banner across the top had some column that was about the silly season. And I was like 23 and I didn't understand what that meant. Like I didn't understand that in the summer people get 
like shirty and bored and weird and the news gets like turned inside out. And now I get it. But I actually think I would like to go down as being in favor of discussing very stupid things, not at the exclusion of smart things, but having like a little morsel of dessert of discussing something as dumb as Justin Trudeau's hair. Like, I feel like we need a bit of like inconsequential stupidity after two years, uh, as long as we keep it in its proper place. I don't know. Sometimes bad haircuts happen even to well-haired individuals. (laughs) I don't know what that's like, but yeah. (laughs) I really don't think we're heading to a snap election. I think the you know, maybe last time Trudeau went in, he didn't tip his barber enough. And so this time the barber just wanted to like take it all off or whatever the case may be. And, you know, I'd actually point to the opposite. Like if he was actually gearing up for an election, wouldn't you want to make sure your hair is in tip top condition and you wouldn't want to get a bad haircut? So I think if anything, the bad haircut only further solidifies the fact that we're not headed for a snap fall election. That seems pretty definitive. And if I remember before the last election, the beard came off not too long before the election. So That's yeah. yeah, but I can, I can, I can uh, sympathize if you just want to clip it all off and it's just easier that way than having to worry about cooler. it. We are in the hot weather. It, it seems yeah. very, it's like good air conditioning for your head. Yeah. All right. Well, that's probably the reason. So, all right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, a lighter note to finish on some darker topics. Uh, that's politics these days. So uh, thanks, Shannon and Supriya. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast this week. Thank Good you. Good to see you guys. Thanks again to Shannon and Supriya. Some leadership news from across the country out in British Columbia. Cabinet Minister David Eby has announced he'll be running for the BC NDP leadership. If he wins it, he'll become the Premier of the province. He has significant backing already from the caucus and, to date, no opponent. The vote is supposed to be completed in early December. The Ontario NDP has set their date for their leadership race to replace Andrew Horvath. We'll know the name of the next leader of the NDP and leader of the official opposition in Ontario in early March 2023. The deadline to submit entry fees and paperwork to be a candidate for the United Conservative Party leadership passed on Wednesday. As of recording, only former Wildrose leaders Danielle Smith and Brian Jean, along with UCP Cabinet Minister Travis Taves, have been officially accepted by the party. According to reports, another five candidates submitted their fees and paperwork ahead of the deadline. They are Rajan Sani, Rebecca Schultz, Ted Lowen, and Leela Ahir, along with former Alberta Liberal leader Raj Sherman, who was denied an exemption from the UCP because he has not been a member of the party for six months, but he is still trying to get in under the deadline. The new UCP leader and Alberta Premier will be named on October 6th. Finally, the Conservative Party of Canada has decided to hold a third mandatory leaders' debate. It will be held in August. And that'll be it for this week. Remember that you can always watch these podcast episodes on my YouTube channel. You can find it by searching for my name on YouTube, and there is a link in the show notes. And of course, head to therit.ca for all the latest and to subscribe and support this podcast if you aren't already a subscriber. All right, keep cool out there and thanks for listening.